Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. Great to have you all, especially if you're a visitor, if it's your first time here. Great to have you with us. Um, it's fascinating to see some, some post-lockdown haircuts. We've gone from the big shaggy manes to now some close crops. That's good to see. Some, uh, some nice tidy barnets. Rob's just looks the same. It's fine. Um, two weeks ago, on Monday the 12th of April, the rules were, were relaxed in England. So uh, if if you were in England, you were able to stay in self-catering accommodation overnight for a holiday. And, and just a few days before that, some friends of Claire's parents who are at City Church um, phoned us up and said, would you like to use our holiday cottage up in uh, the north of Northumberland uh, for three days for free? So, well, obviously, we weren't going to say no to that. A free cottage for three days. That's fantastic. And you can see it there. It doesn't actually look that big. I had to stretch the photo to fit the frame. So it's not as big as it looks. But anyway... And after three months of lockdown, we were obviously just really excited to say, absolutely, of course we're going to do that. And we just went and, ha and had a great time. But it was a different kind of holiday for us than normal. Normally, those of you who know me will know that I'm not a very chilled person and I'm quite programmed. And, uh, we, but we didn't. We, we just had three days of just chilling out and doing pretty much nothing. Although I have to, do, uh, to confess, I did make Claire walk around some graveyards looking for some of my ancestors. That, that's a usual kind of holiday thing for us. Normally, if we have a holiday, it's very different. I research the area that we're going to, and uh, I find all the places to visit and all the things to do, and then I create a spreadsheet. Everybody needs a holiday spreadsheet. We should be having the next slide up. Great, thank you. Everybody needs a holiday spreadsheet. You, you shouldn't, if you haven't got a holiday spreadsheet, shame on you. You need to get organized. And the whole point of a holiday of a holiday spreadsheet is it, it, it means that you make the most of every day and you make sure that all the places that are worth visiting and all the things that are worth doing are done. Although even as I've described that, I can see some of you are thinking, what, are you crazy, a holiday spreadsheet? Some of you are horrified at that thought. For most people, or for lots of people anyway, holidays is just about lazing by a pool, chilling out, maybe eating some good food and, and just doing very little. Maybe kind of sitting by the beach or sitting by a pool reading a book and chilling. I know that Rob and Sarah are a little bit different. They go and just do sport for two weeks, but they're in a whole other world. It's a whole other level of holiday spreadsheet. But if that's what you do with your holiday, then that's fine. I mean, obviously you're wrong, but I'll be praying for you to be more organized like me. But for me, it would just be such a shame to go somewhere that I've not been before, or even if we have been uh, to, the, uh, to the place before, which is most of our holidays. I still want to make sure that everything that's worth doing there, that we do, that everything that we could see that we do, and so on. And I'd just be really gutted if, if I traveled a long way and then I got home and discovered, oh, there was all those places we could have gone, there was all those things that we could have done. Now, when Jesus came to earth, he certainly wasn't on a holiday. In fact, it couldn't have been more opposite from that. He left the glory and the wonder and the brilliance and the majesty of heaven and came to a world that's messed up and screwed up by sin. But he didn't just come to kind of wander around aimlessly with no kind of uh, objective in mind. He came with a, a single focus goal, and that single focus goal had been planned for all eternity. And that goal was to come and to die on the cross for you and for me, to take the punishment for your sin, for my sin, and then to, to rise from the dead and to return back to heaven. And the exact time of his death had been planned for all eternity. When Jesus came to earth, he was working to God's divine plan. See, that's where I get my justification for a holiday spreadsheet. Jesus was working to God's divine plan, and nothing and nobody would stop him or divert him from doing exactly what God 
had planned him to do and had sent him to do. Over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through John's gospel, and we've reached this point where Jesus is about six months away from the crucifixion. And the Jewish authorities tried to arrest Jesus and have him put to death, but the time that God had planned for that was still a little bit in advance. It was six months down the road. Jesus had a very clear mission, a very clear goal, a very clear plan, a plan and, and nothing was going to prevent him from accomplishing that and achieving his goal or disrupting the timing of it. Last week we saw that about halfway through the Jewish feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and began to teach in the temple courts. And that's where we're going to pick up from today. So if you've got a Bible handy, we're going to read from John chapter 7, and it's verses 25 to 52. John chapter 7, verse 25 to 52. And if you, it, uh, you can just listen if you want as I'm uh, reading the passage. So John 7, uh, 25. At that point, this is as, as Jesus has stood up and has started to speak, and there's a bit of response from the crowd we looked at last week. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that, Christ, that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked him, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. As Jesus responded to the questions and the doubts as to his identity by telling them that he'd come from God but that they didn't know God, that they didn't have a relationship with God, some of the people really didn't like what they were hearing and what Jesus was saying to them. 
And in verse 30, we read this. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour had not yet come. The hour, the time, the point in history that God had planned for all eternity, for that moment when Jesus would die for your sins and for my sins, was still about six months away. So despite their attempts to seize him, they weren't able to do so. We don't know how that played out physically, but we do know why. It was because God was in control of this schedule. Jesus' schedule was God's schedule and his plan, and God was in control. But the hour of Jesus' sacrificial death would come, and then Jesus would return to God the Father, the one who had sent him. Jesus would accomplish everything that he had planned to do. In verse 33, he says, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus would return to God, the one who'd sent him, but he would do so via the cross. He would do so via the grave, via the tomb, because that is what he'd come to do. Above all else, that was his goal. He'd come to deal with sin and death and hell by dying in our place on the cross and taking the, the punishment for our sins for your sins for my sins and once that was done once that was completed and accomplished he then returned to God the Father but the people listening didn't understand what Jesus was on about the Jews said to one another where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks the Jews at this time uh, in history referred to anybody who wasn't a Jew as a Greek Okay, so not everybody was Greek, but that's what they meant. And they were wondering, maybe Jesus was going to go and travel around the Roman Empire and teach people who weren't Jews what he'd been teaching them. But Jesus wasn't going to travel around the empire. He was going back to heaven via the cross and via the grave. The first readers of John's account of this book that we're reading, that we're working through, would have been Uh, Christians in various churches around the Roman Empire, or people who became Christians as a result of reading John's uh, account in some cases. And the reason that they'd become Christians was because after Jesus had died and risen from the dead and returned to heaven, he then gave the Holy Spirit to empower his followers. And we're going to look at what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in verses 37 to 39 next week. But when the Holy Spirit came and filled and empowered Jesus' followers, they then traveled all over the known world, teaching both Jews and non-Jews, what the the Jews call Greeks. And and, and tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands in those first decades, became Christians. They put their faith and trust in Jesus. And many of them would have become Christians through reading John's gospel. John says in chapter 20, he says that he wrote his account so that people would believe. That was his primary reason for writing this account. Little did the crowd know that when they asked, probably a little bit sarcastically, if Jesus was going to go and teach the Greeks, that that's precisely what would happen, but it wouldn't be Jesus, it would be his followers. It would be Jesus through his followers, through his disciples. And that role of telling both Jews and non-Jews about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross there becoming our perfect substitute sacrifice, that's a role that if we are believers in Jesus and followers of his today, that we still have. That's an ongoing role that you have and I have if we're followers of Jesus. And God has sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to tell others about Jesus. That's one of the main reasons the Holy Spirit comes, to empower us. And the very thing that 
the people listening to Jesus asked if he was going to do it in probably quite a sarcastic sort of way, really, is the thing that Jesus is now doing through us today. We are the means by which that good news about Jesus is reaching those Greeks. In other words, all those people around the world who are not Jews and people who are Jews as well. We are the means today by which Jesus is reaching out to both Jews and, and, and non-Jews, the Greeks of the Jews of Jesus' time. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but I find that hugely challenging. Am I doing the work of Jesus today in telling other people about him? Is that what I'm active in doing? I find that really challenging. Am I fulfilling Jesus' great commission, telling other people about him so that they can have their sins forgiven, they can have a relationship with God and receive eternal life? It's a bit difficult at the moment, isn't it, for us to do that. It's difficult to interact with any other human other than people in our household, although it's getting easier. But all of the things that we would normally do as a church are restricted massively or or, or we can't have at all at the moment. But in the coming weeks and the coming months as the restrictions are lifted, we're going to have Fit for Life again for the ladies. We've got our annual Family Fun Day in September. We've got a Men's Hill Walk in October. We've got a quiz night in November. And lots of great things that we're putting on as a church for us to be able to invite our non-Christian friends along to in the hope and the prayer that they might encounter Jesus at those various events and on Sundays, that they might hear the good news about Jesus. So can I ask you, can I encourage you to, to be thinking about who can I invite to those events? Who can I invite? Who might I be bringing to those events? Not just to wait till the Friday night and then think, oh, yeah, who could I ask? A bit late. I've not got around to doing that. Think about it now and, and, and be praying for them and asking them. It's good to regularly ask ourselves that question. Who am I trying to share the good news about Jesus with? If we're not intentional about this, it just doesn't happen. It, certainly if you're anything like me, that's why you need a holiday schedule. If you're not intentional, it doesn't happen. And you need one as well when we're trying to tell others about Jesus. If we're not intentional, we don't plan to do this. It just never quite happens. On your outline, you you should have an outline in front of you, and I want to encourage you to pick that up right now, and there's a space there for you, and I want you to, I want to challenge you to write down, there's pens in the seats in front of you, I want to challenge you this morning to write down the name or the names of those that God has put in your life and on your heart for you to share the good news about Jesus with. Now is a great opportunity, now is a time to write their names down. And instead of just being kind of vague about what we're trying to do for Jesus, but really be specific and say, yeah, God has put that person in my life. God has put that person on my heart, and I'm going to write that person's name or those few names down. And I want you to do that right now. I want to encourage you to do that right now. Or maybe just imagine those people's faces in your head, in, in, in your mind that, uh, right now. It might be a family member. It might be a, a son or a daughter. It might be a parent. It might be a neighbor. It might be someone you work with at at uh, work or at school or whatever it might be. And let's just take a moment to pause and to pray for those people right now. Just close our eyes, just, just to bring that face, that name before God this morning and ask him, just in the silence of our hearts and in the silence of the moment, ask God to save those people. Ask that God would bring those people. Ask that the Holy Spirit would convict them and bring them to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus. Just take just a few seconds to, to do that right now in the, in, the, in the sacredness of this moment.
Father, I pray for every single person that's been named, that's been written down, that's been imagined, that's been conjured up in our minds right now. And I pray for each one of those people, Lord, to be saved, to put their faith and trust in you. Would you save many people through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we try to tell other people about Jesus, we need to be prepared for a whole variety of different kind of responses. Some of them are going to be positive, lots of them are going to be negative. And as we read through John 7, we see that. We see a whole variety of different kind of responses to Jesus. In verse 25, the crowds speaking about Jesus say this, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that, that he is the Christ? Christ and Messiah are, uh, mean the same thing. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew, and they both mean God's chosen king. The crowds knew that the authorities wanted to put Jesus to death, but but their lack of action from the authorities was confusing them. And so they wondered, well, maybe had they changed their minds? And then we get the first objection to Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. This was a commonly held wrong belief at the time that the Messiah would just kind of appear out of nowhere and that nobody would know where he was from. But, of course, the problem was everybody knew where Jesus was from. They, they knew Jesus well by this time, and they knew that he lived in Galilee. This belief wasn't a biblical one. The Old Testament didn't teach it, but it was a commonly held view that the Messiah would just appear out of nowhere. And the same is true today, isn't it? People have all sorts of strange ideas about Jesus, and you might have encountered some of those as you uh, share your faith with people. Jesus responds by saying this, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. That, in, it doesn't really translate into English, but in the Greek, in the original, this is kind of almost sarcasm. It's kind of irony from Jesus uh, he was basically saying to them, no, you don't know where I'm from. You think you do, but you don't. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him. Jesus says he knows God. In other words, he's in relationship with God, but they're not. They don't know God, even though they think they do, and even though they think they know where Jesus is from. They really don't like that. These people who think that because they're Jews, they have a special relationship with God. And yet here is Jesus, a Jew, saying that they don't. And they really don't like Jesus saying that to them. They're actually incensed by what Jesus has said to them. So they try and seize him. But again, for whatever physical reason, they're unable to do so because God is at work. But at the same time, some people do respond well to Jesus. The, the very next verse says, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? By this point, Jesus had performed loads of different miracles. So one section of the crowd were pretty convinced that Jesus, maybe Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. But sadly, actually, if we, if we go over to John 8, we find that even these people, even though it says here that they had faith in Jesus, or they believed in Jesus, it seems obviously it's very much a, a surface, superficial level, because they end up arguing with Jesus in John 8, and they end up trying to stone Jesus. They're, try, they're trying to put him to death. But their response here in verse 31 worries the ruling authorities, the Pharisees and the, and the, the Jewish uh, rulers, who, of course, were trying to get Jesus dead at this point. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And then Jesus presumably leaves the temple uh, because he knows the temple guards are on their way and he lies low for a few days until the very last day of the feast. And we're going to look at that next week. And then he stands up and he delivers this amazing uh, speech, this amazing um, message about the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at next week. 
And in, his resp- and in response to his words about the Holy Spirit and to everything else he'd been saying, there's again a real mixed reaction to Jesus. Verse 40 says this, On hearing his words, some of the people said, This man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? But John uses here a really clever way of writing. John is a genius, the way he writes his account where the full significance of these people's words are clear to us as the readers, but they're not clear to the people who spoke them. And John uses the very objections that the people raised about Jesus to demonstrate to us, the readers, that Jesus is both the person they called the prophet and the Messiah, because we, the readers, know that although Jesus lived in Galilee, he was born in Bethlehem, he was physically descended from King David. So there's real confusion about Jesus and over Jesus. Verse 43 says this, Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. The temple guards weren't hired thugs. They weren't mercenaries. They were men who would have been around the temple all their lives. They were men who would have known the Old Testament really well. And they recognized that Jesus was different. They recognized that no one ever spoke the way that this man does. So you get this wide range of responses from the people uh, to who Jesus is and to what Jesus said. The, the, the The religious rulers are outraged by him. They hate him. They want him dead. They're trying to arrest him. Some people are confused by Jesus. They, they think he might be the Messiah, but what they think they know about his identity seems to contradict that to them. Others have some kind of belief in Jesus, but then even as we turn over to, to John 8, even they quickly turn against Jesus. And it's really important that we grasp this because as followers of Jesus, as we try and tell other people about him, we will often get the same kind of wide responses most people rejected Jesus when he was here on earth, and most people still do. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, you will be hated by everyone because of me. And a little bit later on in John, Jesus says this to his disciples. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Our great task as followers of Jesus is to go into all the world and tell other people about him. But we need to be prepared to get the same kind of responses that Jesus had. Some people will respond well, but most people will reject Jesus because he's not quite the Jesus they want, and therefore they will reject us. When we present Jesus, people will often reject him, and so they'll often reject us. Jesus divides people today. He did then, and he still does today. Jesus was misunderstood and will be misunderstood. Jesus was hated, and and sadly, sometimes there will be times when, because we represent Jesus, we'll also be hated and rejected and persecuted. We've got the greatest news in the world to tell other people about, that Jesus came to die for our sins, to conquer death and hell, and to return to God the Father and prepare an eternal home for us. And we need to be active in spreading that good news, that information. And it's more important than anything we'll ever do with our lives. As we do that, we need to be prepared for the fact that we'll often get the same kind of kickback, the same kind of response and objections that Jesus got. But it's not all doom and gloom. 
There's a fantastic ray of light in this passage, and it comes in the form of a man called Nicodemus. Look at verses 50 to 51. As the chief priests and the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus arrested and put to death, we read this about Nicodemus, who was one of the top Pharisees. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? He has his doing. Something is going on in Nicodemus's heart. Back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus had gone to visit Jesus by night, and he was afraid of the other Pharisees, and he was afraid of these, these Jewish uh, religious group, the Pharisees. They really hated Jesus. But this is what Nicodemus the Pharisee says to Jesus back in John chapter 3. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus went on to explain in John 3 that, uh, to Nicodemus that night that he needed to be born again, as we all do, and that he, Jesus, was going to be lifted up on a cross to save those who would then put their faith and trust in him. Nicodemus didn't become a Christian that night when he visited Jesus, despite all that Jesus said to him. And here in John 7, he's still not reached that point where he's put his faith and his trust in Jesus, but he's clearly on something of a journey. The Holy Spirit is at work in his heart. In John 3, he went to see Jesus at night because he was afraid of the other Pharisees. Now he steps out of the shadows a little bit and begins to stand up. And although he's obviously still not entirely sure himself about Jesus and about Jesus' identity, and he's not fully prepared to be identified with Jesus, but as John writes his account, he leaves the story of Nicodemus hanging for a little bit. He appears in John 3, visiting Jesus by night. Then he pops up here in John 7, trying to stand up for Jesus to some degree, and is obviously still working through what Jesus is saying to him. But if we fast forward to John chapter 19, after Jesus has been crucified and his body was taken down from the cross, we read these fantastic and amazing words. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms or 77 pounds in weight. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Joseph was a member of the Jewish ruling council and a very rich man, and he had a huge amount to lose by doing this. Nicodemus was also one of the top Pharisees, but like Joseph of Arimathea, he was now prepared to stand up and be counted. He was now prepared to be known by going to the top Roman ruling authority, and he was now prepared to be known as a disciple of Jesus. Even though it would probably cost him everything in terms of his reputation and his status and probably his wealth, Joseph uh, provided his unused family tomb, which would have been worth an absolute fortune. And Nicodemus brings the spices to anoint Jesus' body with. And these spices were a huge amount in weight, and they would have cost an absolute fortune. Normally, only royalty would be anointed with so much spices. And it's really important that we see just how significant what Nicodemus and Joseph are doing here. They both went public with their devotion to Jesus, and they sacrificed a massive amount. Both Joseph and Nicodemus had clearly arrived at a point in their lives where they recognized and believed who Jesus was, and they were now prepared to be known as disciples 
of Jesus. When we read the majority of responses to Jesus in uh, John 7 or in the rest of the four Gospels, it, it can be a bit discouraging. Most people seem to reject Jesus. Uh, and especially as we've done this morning, we, we realize that if we're followers of Jesus, we'll face the same kind of rejection and opposition and sometimes hostility. But the account of Nicodemus is fantastic because it shows us that the Holy Spirit is at work in people's lives. He was then and he is now. And like Nicodemus, lots of people are on a journey. People don't always or, or, or don't normally put their faith and trust in Jesus immediately the first time they're presented with the information about Jesus. But I want to encourage you this morning that if you have been sharing the good news about Jesus with people in your life, I want to encourage you to keep on praying for them. Keep on praying because it really does matter. I don't understand everything about prayer. I don't understand much about prayer. But what I do know is that God responds to prayer and God saves people when we pray for them. So keep on praying and keep on telling people about Jesus. Because just like Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit may well be at work in their hearts and lives. Those people in your office, in your class at school, in your family, in your street. And you never know when they'll finally step out of the light, out of the shadows, into the light, and put their faith and trust in Jesus. You'll probably find that the majority of people that you tell about Jesus will reject him, and therefore they'll reject you just as they've rejected Jesus, as we've seen this morning. But wouldn't it be great if that person or, or, or these people that you've been praying for, those names on your outlines this morning, those folks' faces that you brought to your mind, wouldn't it be great if they, like Nicodemus, stepped out of the shadows and said, I want to follow Jesus. I want my sins forgiven. I want a relationship with God. So can I encourage you, keep on praying for those people in your life that God has put in your life. Keep on praying that they, like Nicodemus, would finally reach the point where they give their lives to Jesus. It may be that you're a bit like Nicodemus this morning. You've been checking out who Jesus is. You've been checking out what he says. But so far, you've yet to give your life to him. I want to challenge you this morning. It's time to stop checking out who Jesus is, and it's time to respond to who he is and to give your life to him, to step out of the shadows, to finally say, I will surrender my life to Jesus. I will give myself to him and to acknowledge your sin, to turn away from it, receive that forgiveness that Jesus offers and to begin that new life with Jesus in charge as your Lord and Savior. And if that's you, why not take that step of faith this morning and step out of the shadows and into the light and declare yourself as a follower of Jesus. Don't put it off any longer. Now is the time of salvation, the Bible says. Not tomorrow, not next week. Do it this morning. Do it today. If you want to know more about that, if you want to chat with me, then obviously, mass permitting, we can do that afterwards. But if that's you this morning, don't put it off any longer. Trust in Jesus. I'm going to pray. And then the band are going to come and uh, lead us before we take communion together. Let me just pray. Just bow our heads and Ask God to just to speak to us and encourage us. Father, we thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus that he came with that goal of the cross and death and hell and the resurrection. And thank you that he came and he accomplished your will. And thank you this morning that we, so many of us here this morning can say we know our sins are forgiven and we have a relationship with you and we have eternal life. We thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, help us to be active and, and consistent and persistent as we try and tell others. Father, I pray this morning for anybody here who doesn't yet know you, that they, like Nicodemus, will step out of the darkness, out of the shadows, and into the light, 
and stand and be counted as a follower of Jesus. Thank you for your love to us. Thank you for your grace to us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.